If you want to keep people powerless, keep them isolated, make them feel alone in what they're going through, and make them feel that they have to put up with it because there's no other way. If you want to break that down, you've got to get these isolated individuals talking to one another and realising that they're part of something bigger and that together they can, you know, perhaps change things, which is one of the objectives of a feminist perspective. Welcome to the Research for Good podcast. So today it's a great honour to be able to introduce Dr. Dr. Lorna Stevens, who's one of the UK's leading experts in uh, feminist perspectives and marketing. Uh, she's recently published a new book on the subject, um, and I'm really excited to talk to her about her work. So welcome, Lorna. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, so so I'm, I'm, I have to confess, I'm not an expert in the area, but certainly in the last few years, uh, the public seem to be far more engaged with feminism, um, particularly within popular media. Is, is that a fair thing to say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, feminism, for sure, was out of fashion for quite a few years. Whenever we published our first book in 2000, um, there was a lot of discussion about feminism. I would say if you're going to sort of link it to the four waves of feminism, it was kind of like the tail end of the second wave. And it hadn't quite infiltrated the marketing discipline. And so it was kind of a, the timing was quite good. But in the next 22 years, you know, from when we published the first book, feminism was on the wane. And we had moved into this third wave phase when there was a sort of a, sometimes called the third wave, sometimes called the post-feminist phase. Feminism had lost a sort of uh, an activism and it had become more about, um, well actually it had become more about the body uh, and uh, there was this sort of phenomenon um, of the say third wave feminists uh, basically uh, being very sort of individualistic and very celebratory and it was a very physical kind of um, way of expressing um, your power as a woman. Um, and it didn't sit terribly easily with uh, a lot of feminists, including myself. So when you talk about that wane, what, what, what caused that wane, do you think? Probably wasn't one thing. Well, I think there was a cert- sort of perception that a lot of the battles had been won. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the underlying issues hadn't gone away. You talk about the media, you know, if, if there's a perception that there's no longer an issue, the issue dies away. You know, for, for it to, to, to be current, it has to be talked about, it has to be discussed, it has to be debated. And that wasn't happening. Um, and, I mean, there were some terrific books published during that, that period, like um, The Pornification of Society, The Hypersexualization of Society, uh, and so on. And, and both, of, both of those particular books, shall we say, had a huge impact and expressed a sort of mood and there was a sort of an understanding that, well, this isn't necessarily doing women any favours, this current phase that we're in as a society. And um, instead of sexual objectification, what we had was this interesting concept of sexual subjectification. So um, in this sort of hypersexualized society, young women were, were seeing their sexuality as their route to power. And all of the other aspects of feminism, like equality and um, pay and all of the, sort of the, the, the issues that had been debated before that, 
disappeared. And of course, we had the advent of the internet, which which emphasised this very visual um, emphasis, if you like, in society. That's really interesting. So <clears throat> in terms of the internet for emphasising the visual, do you think there's also the kind of the other direction where that's given people more mm-hmm. of a voice who might not have had that yeah, voice before? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so yes, with the advent of the sort of digital age, uh, it brought with it a resurgence in feminism. Mm-hmm. So the fourth wave uh, is perceived to have broken around about 2013. And so we're in the fourth wave. We're now in the fourth in wave. The fourth wave yeah. And um, and yes, it's very much, uh, there's a very strong element of digital um, activism, hmm. uh, feminist activism. And of course, the backlash, the, you know, inevitably, uh, the debates and the backlash that, 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 go, that go with that. Would it be fair to say that that digital activism still carries into, like, you know, re- offline activism Absolutely. As well? Yeah, hmm. it does. And um, it, it just energised young women and it enabled them to sort of form communities and to highlight issues and to share experiences. And obviously a lot of very high profile uh, movements like the Me Too movement, for example. Mm-hmm. And it suddenly created these forums of, of discussion and it absolutely spilled out into the streets. So for the first time in however many years, women were actually out marching again. It sounds like it's re-established its direction or, or a voice perhaps, or a message. It's become political again. Yeah. Why is feminism and marketing so important? Well, marketing is about markets and it's about consumers. So it's about culture. It's about the world that we live in. And if you're going with an exploitative model of consumers, then clearly that's going to have an impact on the kind of society you create and the sort of society you're encouraging. Um, If you're critiquing markets and the marketplace and the wider systems uh, that support it, you're doing so in order to to try and sort of create a, a better society, in effect, that is a fairer society, that is more respectful of differences of, of different communities and doesn't just, well, it's this androcentric worldview, you know, where human beings are the centre of everything and can do what they like. And to try and sort of have a different perspective, which typically is more akin to a feminist perspective, which would be to uh, appreciate that we are just part of a much bigger system here and there needs to be respect in that system. If it's all about exploitation, if it's all about control, if it's all about authority, power, um, we're going to create a society that, well, we can see the effect of that, uh, that value system, that masculine value system, if you like, uh, in, 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 on the world. And so from a feminist perspective, you'd be trying to sort of promote more feminine value system, which is much more about, it's much more egalitarian, it's much more about equality, fairness, respect for everything in the world, not just this valoration of 
man, <laughs> you know, at the top of the pyramid, you can do whatever he likes. And within sort of popular discourse, there's obviously people who then support that and that builds those movements and builds communities, but then presumably there's also some backlash to that as well. Yeah, I think the minute you sort of um, talk about feminism, the minute you talk about anything, the minute you take a position, take a standpoint, there's going to be a backlash. And you certainly see that with the fourth wave feminist movement because it's been so good, because it, they've been so good at it, at, at raising awareness of issues, um, of, um, you say, activating, that's the right word, uh, you know, young women, of, of making women realise, oh, hang on, there are things going on beyond my personal experience that, um, that I can connect to. Um, you know, the personal is political. If you want to keep people powerless, keep them isolated, make them feel alone in what they're going through and make them feel that they have to put up with it because there's no other way. If you want to break that down, you've got to get these isolated individuals talking to one another and realising that they're part of something bigger and that together they can, you know, change things, which is one of the objectives of a feminist perspective. To, to be able to change society. And some of that backlash as well can actually help pull other, those people together because it can reinvigorate those arguments. Yeah, That's it can. to make it sound good, by the way. That's yeah, it can, it can. Um, I think it's important to stress here that um, we talk now about feminisms rather than feminism. There are many forms of feminism um, out there and we don't police, you know, how it's defined. So I wonder if you could give some examples of where you feel that feminism has been hijacked within marketing. Well, I think you see it a lot when we talk about femvertising now, where you have brands jumping on because they can see this resurgence of interest in feminist perspectives. There have been those very successful movements to highlight sexism in society, like the Me Too movement and so on, and a lot of brands quite cynically hijack it for their own commercial ends. And yes, we're all pretty savvy. We know when we're being manipulated. We know when we're being patronised. Uh, you just have to dig a bit deeper into a brand and you see how deep their principles go. And for many, many brands, it's skin deep. Not even the skin, I mean, it's gloss. It's glamour, you might say. And the, um, a really good example of that, this femvertising, is in the advertising of sanity products. So we have a chapter actually on that, on um, the stigma around menstruation, the way that the, the main sanitary product brands glossed over the reality of menstruation because it might be, you know, Offensive. Um, there is a stigma, um, widespread stigma in, in many societies about menstrual blood. Um, so initially they were trying to gloss it over and uh, um, so as not to kind of um, to, focus, to, to focus on a biological reality uh, and to make it pretty because that's what marketing does, it makes things pretty. But in order to address this shift 
in, you know, feminism, this resurgence of interest in feminist perspectives. And given that these brands are clearly targeting women, they felt they needed to give them, uh, give them uh, themselves some sort of credentials, feminist credentials. So there have been a number of sort of really interesting campaigns, um, one of which was to, instead of using blue dye, they used pink dye. So at least they're kind of halfway to acknowledging the existence of menstrual blood. But the language around that is very much about women's empowerment. And probably the most famous example of it actually is um, Dove campaign for real beauty. And I just saw an ad last night, their latest uh, one, which is all about body positivity and focusing on the damage that social media can do to young girls' self-esteem. It's very, very closely aligned with causes. And it has been very successful because of that alignment. But if you want to see how deep it goes, you have to go to the source and, if you like, deconstruct their mission statement, their vision, what they do with the money they make, how much they actually donate to good causes. It's like companies that pretend to be environmentally um, sound as well. You know, um, a company sets itself up as espousing certain principles. It has, it's spending vast fortune on an ad campaign uh, to promote that message. But is it true? Uh, you know, you need, to, you need to get to the source and see if this is more than skin deep, if they actually put their money where their mouths or their mouth is, <laughs> um, to sort of really understand if, if, if there's integrity behind it, if there's honesty, if there's social responsibility behind it. And there are many brands that, that, that when you look at them uh, more closely, let you down. But there are other brands that actually are genuinely coming from uh, the right place. I mean, the research I'm doing at the moment on the white company, um, if you analyse that brand and you understand the principles of the founder of that brand and you see their activities in the market and the, the campaigns they run and the organisations they support. Now, I haven't drilled down into the numbers, but it's, it is consistent with the mission statement of that brand, that it is, if you like, a, a feminine brand with a woman who founded it in 1994 and a lot of the, the um, campaigns uh, that they run are all about women, uh, women and children, uh, giving women opportunities. I mean, it, it's all there quite visibly in their mission statement. So what I take from that, perhaps naively, is that Chrissy Rucker genuinely believes this. She lives it. It's part of her, it's part of her identity. It's not just let's pretend, you know, we give a, you know, <laughs> uh, about women. She, she, she has a brand that is targeting primarily women, albeit middle class women. But a lot of the projects that they are sponsoring are reaching out to not just middle class women uh, to try and be a force for good in society. So is it fair to, it sounds like at the, 
at the forefront of your work is about you know you're really interested in people's feelings and their experiences and their emotions but as an academic you're also interested in making sure that you ha- it's fun that you that, that what you're doing is fun is that a fair assumption or are you allowed to say that you're having fun if you're an academic i, I think so <laughs> Yeah, because I mean, you can be making a serious point, mm-hmm. but you can be trying to communicate it in a um, an engaging way. So, for example, you know, we did a we did a study of uh, a brand mascot, Elsie the Borden Cow, um, and we used an eco feminist lens, and it became a critique of the the dairy industry in the US and uh, a critique of how cows uh, are, are used in advertising generally. So you could say, well, this is a kind of quite a, uh, this, you know, does this have the weight of an academic study? But when you bring in um, a particular lens to look at it, then you find you have a, well, I think, uh, an interesting story to tell. The methods, the research methods that I use are all qualitative. Um, so, you know, interviews, accompanied shopping, if I'm doing a study of, uh, you know, a brand, a retail brand, let's say, for example, focus groups, small group discussions, um, sort of ethnographic approaches. Um, but also, in the case of that, the dairy, the dairy industry pieces, I also would do quite a lot of deconstructing of texts to try to get behind them to see what the underlying ideologies mm-hmm. of them are. So I've done quite a lot of advertising research to, to taking that approach. Mm-hmm. Here's an advertisement. Now, what do we think is going on here? And if we took a particular perspective, what can we reveal? So it's almost like you're sort of deconstructing their creative process, but you're also being creative in that deconstruction. Yeah. I like it. No, that's a nice way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's what I take. So, yeah, I have to. And, and there is a whole kind of there's a whole bunch of us actually uh, in marketing who emphasise marketing as an art mm. rather than a science. I mean, it's a it's a movement. We are a large community uh, in marketing, um, and it's really important to have that sort of a, a way of expressing uh, ourselves in 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 creative and more creative ways. Over time, the feminist perspective has come, become folded into or almost subsumed under the umbrella of critical marketing. And there is a very lively community of critical marketing scholars. So a critical marketing perspective quite often would be uh, highlighting sort of issues like sustainability, you know, environmental issues more generally. But th- there are a lot of potential kind of ways in which we can critique marketing and so the position that the critical marketers take is that marketing isn't fab necessarily that um, marketing has responsibilities and the whole thing with marketing whenever we started to critique it was that it was macho and used its sort of sort of military metaphors like battle metaphors to to um, to find to find ways of, well, I'm going to say exploiting, uh, ways of targeting, to use the marketing language, consumers, and there's a lot of things that mark that marketers have been accused of, like the manipulation, like the overpackaging, you know, from an environmental perspective, like the lies 
that are told in advertisements and you know we could go on and on and there is now very deeply embedded in the marketing discipline this very strong critical uh, vein well does advertising reflect society does it manip manipulate and shape society and of course the answer is it does both but that's you know it's coming from from that uh, perspective as well just how much of this is simply a reflection of the world that we live in you know how what are their motivations if you think in, in relation to feminist uh, feminist perspectives you know the whole sort of criticism of femvertising of feminist brands um, for example is, is uh, constantly being uh, you know brands are constantly being called out for actually you know being deceptive yeah so I mean it sounds like those things led to this book, you know, all those kind of different things. Yeah, kind of absolutely. Led to well, we have a section on uh, representation, so that includes um, advertising. In that, we have a section on the body, we have a section on technology, um, the whole sort of digital realm. Um, so, in actual fact, we were spoilt for choice because there has been such a sort of a burgeoning of interest um, in feminist perspectives. Uh, I won't say we sort of struggled in 2000 to put together a book, but we were a pretty small community. 20 years on, uh, there are still the old timers like myself chipping away. <laughs> uh, but there's also young ones, uh, young feminists, a whole new generation, and they're, they're vibrant and they're, you know, committed and they're vocal and they're, you know, animated and all of those things. And so we had a huge a huge range of potential um, authors to approach. And so in terms of from the book or, or just more widely in your own work, you know, we've talked quite a bit about the kind of academic side and, and getting people to think and, you know, understand the world around us. But what sort of impact do you think your, your work has? You know, looking at feminist perspectives in marketing, we weren't going to make ourselves popular. And, uh, and in fact, we were dubbed the three witches by some of our male colleagues when we started doing this work. I mean, that was the environment, uh, you know, kind of rule of the eyes, oh, the three witches. So that was the kind of environment. And I have, uh, you know, feminism has been in fashion, been out of fashion, and now it's back in fashion. And suddenly our work is, is in fashion again. And that's quite gratifying that if you just stick to your principles, uh, and don't think about popularity, but if you believe in what you're doing, um, you know you, you you stick at it, you know. But also, it's having an impact on young scholars. So, and you do have to be careful. Um, I mean, feminism is still a bit of an F word, and I always put it alongside gender issues, and I always um, will will frame it in that way. And if someone's interested, so for example. In my research methods, uh, my master's research methods classes, I'll, I'll talk about feminist research alongside all the other methods that are available. And usually I get a few students who want to talk to me about it, who are interested, uh, who maybe want to do dissertations on it. And that's gratifying because you can see, uh, you know, them really connecting with them. My particular brand of feminism is, as, as you pointed out, it's experiential, it's about words. A lot of my research is exploring emotions, feelings, embodied experiences. And you're encouraging 
uh, students to think a different way about marketing. You're encouraging them to think about consumption rather than marketing management. And marketing management is still very macho. Uh, and despite relationship marketing, there's still this very strong emphasis on being very instrumental and um, how can I be, become a marketing manager and get a good job and make lots of money. And the unit that I took uh, last semester um, was about their consumption experiences. And so the students had to think about an individual consumption experience and then write about it, write an introspection, but it's about them exploring their emotions and feelings and so on, and then analyse it in terms of the academic literature that we've studied in class. And the feedback was terrific. A lot of the students said it was just, it was interesting for them to be able to legitimately write about themselves and, and reflect on an experience and understand that that small experience, like going to a coffee shop to drink coffee, going to the same coffee shop every morning to have a cup of coffee, was actually meaningful um, because it was about a ritual, it was about security, it was about community and, and a lot of really important things in society. Lots of things have changed for the better in some ways. But, but it sounds like there's lots of things that still haven't changed or have been quite sluggish to change does that is do you think that frustration drives keeps driving some of your work i think it's more about identity you know um i had a an older brother who was a bit of a bully and i thought how come he gets how come there's this double standard in this household you know how come he you know gets away with i won't say murder but you know uh and um so there was a sort of a sense of something not quite right so it's 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 in my identity it's who i am and so it's hard for me to kind of separate my identity from my work. It's kind of all part of who I am. Lorna, it's been really great having you here and thanks so much for, for giving your time. You've been listening to the Research for Good podcast. If you want to learn more about Lorna's work, as well as other school of management research that focuses on making the world a better place, then visit the Research for Good page on the University of Bath website. You'll find the link in the episode description.